Hello, I'm Jack Shilito, and welcome to My Aunt Mabel, episode 4. In this episode, we'll dive into two of Mabel's most important shows, The Buggins Family and The English Family Robinson. They represent two entertainment genres that we take for granted today, the sitcom and the soap opera, and Mabel was at the forefront of it all. As Jen says in her book, the creation of the Buggins family represented a significant milestone for radio, as it was the first radio family on either UK or American radio, beating the first American radio family, the Goldbergs, by four years. In 1939, the BBC's director of variety, John Watt, recognised that Mabel's creation of the Buggins family was a historic achievement. According to Tim Crook, a media expert and now head of radio at Goldsmiths College, University of London, the Bugginses were the forerunner of virtually every soap and sitcom family that's ever been. How about that? The Buggins family, or just the Bugginses, was Mabel's most enduring creation. There were over 250 Buggins episodes broadcast between 1928 and 1948. The most characters she ever played in one broadcast were seven. She developed this style of performance because being several people at once enabled her to do the sketches. This was amazingly innovative. Today we're used to voice actors playing several characters in the same show, if not in the same scene. But in the 1920s, this was unheard of. Mabel decided to take this approach as it was more entertaining than monologues. That's in reference to the fact that she had written and performed her own comedic monologues earlier in her broadcasting career. Here's Jilly on Mabel's being encouraged to write monologues and where her Cockney characters were developed. There was a lack of confidence and that when she was going to Elsie Fogarty for sort of elocution acting lessons, that it was Elsie who really encouraged her to write the monologues. And I think that's lovely. It's another kind of line of, I don't know, I guess female network. That, that works and encourages and brings people on. That, you know, suddenly she started, the, the Cockney character came out of that. And obviously it came out of her Tillings family, out of the, you know, the people she knew and, and, and knew how they sounded. So there was a, an authenticity to it. And of course it was also exaggerated for purposes of comedy, which she does very well. In case it wasn't clear, Elsie Fogarty was a pioneer in voice and speech and was the founder and principal of the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, later being awarded a CBE for services to speech training and dramatic arts. Speaking of voice and performing a monologue well, I have a special treat for you now. Jilly has kindly performed one of Mabel's monologues for us. Have listened to this one called Cheering Up Mariah. And it's not exactly a spoiler, but it's very much the opposite of what the title suggests. It's only me, Emily, come to cheer you up a bit. Oh, good gracious, Mariah. Oh, my dear. Oh, what a turn you have given me. There, wait a bit. I can't speak for a minute. My heart's come right up in my throat. Oh, dear. There, I've swallowed it down. Oh, Mariah, you do look bad and no mistake. What have you been doing to yourself to get yourself down so low? Oh, it's made me feel all of a tremble, all of a shake I am. 
I did ought to have been prepared, certainly. For when I met your mother yesterday, she says, Go and see poor Maria, she says. She's laying on her poor back, she says. And what with her husband in China and all, it'll cheer her up to see you. Though, mind you, she'll give you a turn, she says. Looks more like going home than anything human, does poor Maria. Ah, oh, Mrs. Broggins, I says. You remember what I told you at Mariah's wedding? I says, you says to me, the last of the family's left me. And I says, yes, Mrs. Broggins, I says. It will seem a bit flat at first, but now the wedding is over. I says, the funerals soon begin. Of course, I only said it to cheer her up and make her laugh at the time. But it looks as if I spoke truer than I knew. Well, and how are you, Mariah? Well, not that I need to ask, for I only seen one person who looked as bad at you, and that was my brother's wife's aunt be marriage, and she was gone in 24 hours. Oh, that your baby I can see laying out there in the pram. Oh, how old is he? Eight months. He's a beautiful boy, Mariah. He really is a lovely child. Huh? I see ya. Put out your tongue at me, would you, little blighter? He puts me just in mind of my brother Alfred's child. They never had but the one, you know, and they thought the world of that child. Nothing was too good for it. It was a beautiful child, too, just like yours, up to eight months. And then it seemed to take a wrong turn, like. Simply pined away. Nothing did it no good. It didn't seem to fancy nothing to eat do what they would. Well, I've known my brother run out for a pork chop and fry it himself to try and tempt the child to eat. The only thing that did used to seem to liven it up a bit was a drop of beer out of my brother's glass dinner time. But it was just as bad again an hour afterwards. Whisted right away to a shadow it did. And when they had the doctor, he said it was starved. Oh, my brother didn't half feel it. What, many a time I've seen him bring home a newspaper, packet of shrimps for the child's tea, thinking a bit of shellfish be a relish for it. And most days it could have had an old kipper for its dinner, if it would have had it. And then to go and say it was starved. Wasn't even as if they'd give it nothing but milk like some people. Well... It's be hopes your child won't take a wrong turn like what poor Alfreds did. They tell me eight months is a very critical time. What's the matter, dear? You have coloured up. Quite a septic flush there is on your face. You got any pain? Oh, perhaps it would be better if you had. They do say the worse the illness, the less it hurts, don't they? Like my poor sister, Hanny. Hers was a Hinwood canker. She never had no pain. The doctor said it would have been far better if she had. Well, that's what gave me such a turn when I came in just now. You put me so much of mind of her as she lay there. She was a ghastly sight. I says to her, Annie, I says, what have they been doing to you, I says. And you so dreadful wore away, I says. Oh, Henley, she says, a-bursting into tears. Well, may your heart, she says. 
when never a bite of solid food have I touched these three weeks, she says. If I were but crump a bit of addict, she says, I feel I could get on. Annie, I says, an addict you shall have, poor soul, as sure as my name's Emily Dibbling. And the very next visiting day, I got her a lovely addict, a regular Amy addict it was. I cooked it myself to a turn, wrapped it in a newspaper, hid it under my cloak, and I gave it to her to slip under a pillow when the nurse wasn't looking. You should have seen her poor face light up when she saw it. She couldn't hardly speak, being that weak with having nothing solid inside of her, but I left her a gnawing of it. <laughs> Many a time I've been glad I gave her that addict for she took an awful turn for the worse that very night and the next time we met, it was at her funeral. Well, that's why I was so anxious to come along and see you today because you never know, do you? Still, if only you keep your spirits up, that's half the battle, however ill you are. Oh, that's never ooping cough your baby's got, is it? Sounds to me like it. Oh, well, you mustn't worry. If the child's to have it, it'll have it. Worry won't stop it. Only eight months is a very critical age, so I'm told. Now, you ain't worrying about your husband in China, are you? You'll be all right. Why should the Chinese bash him about? He's never done them no harm, I lay. Never had the spirit to lay a finger on you, did he? Let alone a Chinese. Now, when you come to think about it, he's just the sort that come to arm. Them good, steady ones always gets taken, don't they? Very different from my Henry, I recollect, when the war started. I was frightened to death. He wouldn't enlist, and I showed him every bit in the papers what said how well the army was fed. But when he heard rum was served out, that did it. I knew he couldn't resist that. <laughs> if only the Germans would have kept him. No such luck. Back come Henry, same as I knew he would, with a wound in his hand, so he can't do no more work, and an appetite like an ostrich. Oh, yours, of course, is different. Oh, it's always the good ones that goes. Well, I must stop it. I'm glad to have been able to cheer you up a bit. There's nothing like really gay society when you're on your back, is there? And I was always one to have a good laugh and see the funny side. Oh, so long, dear. How good was that? Obviously, humour has changed over the decades, but hopefully you still found it amusing one way or another. Now then, back to Mabel's multi-character sketches. There is some disagreement amongst researchers as to which was the prototype BBC Radio Soap. Some think it began with the Bugginses, others cite the Huggets, which was also created by Mabel. So, either way, Mabel led the way with the soap opera. As Jen says, Mabel was responsible for both bringing soap opera from the US and basically creating the sitcom. Despite her being such an important figure, very little had been written about her and very little was, was really known about her. This woman who could do seven voices at the same time and full audiences. And I thought that, you know, that must be significant in some way. And yet I can't find her anywhere, except for in the same book, a little later on, they say she was part of um, bringing soap opera to 
to Britain. So she's bringing soap opera to Britain and she's got this, clearly she's got voice talent and nobody's talking about her. I was actually really excited to figure out that she was not only this sort of soap opera pioneer, but she was really um, an invisible pioneer of sitcom that nobody had ever thought about. Um, and I was actually quite happy to find out that it was a British invention and not an American one. When Jen was researching the Bugginses, she had a light bulb moment. I realized like, hang on, that's a sitcom. <laughs> it's not really a sitcom. It wasn't called a sitcom at the time because there was no concept of what a sitcom was in ways that we understand it today. And that the concept of a sitcom is an American concept. And so there was always, even in British literature, so even written um, you know, by, by British historians or um, um, uh, you know, anybody associated with the BBC or ITV, there was always this assumption that sitcom was an American concept. And as I looked at the timeline and as I looked at what she was doing, um, I realized that it was all the mechanics of sitcom and that she beat the Americans to it. But nobody had, nobody knew what to call it <laughs> at the time. When you look at definitions of sitcom, it's always this sort of 30 minute, um, serial and it has specific kinds of things that happen into it. So if you take the programming aspect out of it, Mabel was doing sitcom. I mean, it was very clear she was doing sitcom and she was doing not only sitcom, but she was doing family sitcom, which I think is a different part of the genre, which is also important and still incredibly, um, incredibly popular. The terms situational comedy or sitcom were not commonly used until the 1950s. Although the Bugginses are described as sketches, they are more like what we would now call a sitcom. A sketch explores a comic moment where a sitcom tells a much bigger comic story. The complexity of the Buggins family goes beyond the normal framework of sketch writing, so Mabel basically wrote the forerunner of the domestic sitcom with the husband, wife and kids, which has spawned so many permutations ever since, such as the royal family or as Jen discovered, another contemporary sitcom that has surprisingly similar skits, as she explains. I was watching Outnumbered a lot. I would compare Mabel's work with Outnumbered, and there's a couple of skits that Outnumbered, it's almost exactly what she's doing. And then you start thinking about, well, Outnumbered, Outnumbered isn't taking her material clearly, and it's this evolution that's occurred over a hundred years of entertainment about what works and what these kinds of, um, uh, what these kinds of templates look like. And so that's, again, another reason why she's so significant, because she starts out um, really, really sort of testing out new ideas and, and how things can be funny or not funny. And those things get worked on over time, over the 20th century. And Carolyn agrees that it was Mabel who got there first. I think she did write the forerunner of what we think of as a sitcom. Her episodes were quite short, um, but they were more than sketches. A sketch explores a comic moment, whereas a sitcom tells a much, much bigger comic story and has a cast, a long running cast of characters that we all get to know. Um, essentially, a, a, a sitcom is like um, a kind of a, a traditional play but it's like just getting the second and third act. You don't need 
act one because you already know the characters and you already know the situation. Um, so for me, she definitely wrote the forerunner of the sitcom with, you know, the, the domestic, the classic domestic sitcom with the mother, the father and the kids um, sort of battling against the world. Um, and she did that really quite brilliantly. Given the ample evidence of Mabel pioneering the sitcom before it was even a thing, it's odd that she's vanished from history. Here's Carolyn again on why Mabel might have been sidelined. The idea of the lone sitcom writer, you know, because we don't write sitcom in this country. In Britain, we don't write it like they write it in America. In America, they write in teams. They like teams of writers in a room and they all have to come up with fun stuff. Very different in Britain where um, it's always been the product of the man, the product of the, some genius sitting alone in his room. Um, or maybe he's working with another male partner to create, you know, the sitcom, which has always been seen as the sort of jewel in the crown of broadcasting. And I, I do you know, I honestly think that people didn't want to think that maybe Mabel had come up with that idea first and that she'd just done it all on her own and that, and that she didn't think it was especially clever. You know, um, there's something about that that is very endearing. The BBC's Val Gilgood himself thought highly of Mabel, especially when it came to the sitcom, as Cowling continues. Val Gilgood wrote a lot about Mabel Constantius. He thought she was extraordinary um, and he thought she was completely original. And uh, I thought, gosh, this woman sounds really interesting. Why have we never heard of her? Particularly when it came to comedy, because um, at around that time, the 1920s and 30s, and he was looking back on his time. He didn't think there were any formulas to comedy. He, there'd, there'd been no real comedy analysis. And he just thought Mabel was sort of naturally funny, um, which in, in lots of ways she was. But of course, now that we look at her work and analyse it with the kind of theory that we've got associated with comedy now, we can see that she was doing things that are very common in comedy now. But Gilgood was wrong there was a formula that Mabel had been following. Carolyn explains how Mabel's format helped the Buggins series endure and remain popular. The Buggins is stuck to a very kind of rigid format and that was what propelled it really through 250 episodes was its format. The Buggins family, if you were writing a format for a contemporary sitcom now, it might, look some, it might look something like this. The Buggins' family are a working, a working class cockneys. That's very important. Class is very important and it was vital in this case. Um, the Bugginses live in a tiny little house um, and it's cramped because there are so many of them, which causes overcrowding and conflict. You know, sitcom runs on conflict. You've got to have conflict. Um, the mainstay of the family is the young mother, Emily Buggins. She's really old before her time, it's very sad. She's kind, she's dutiful, she wants to make everybody happy. The big thing that really propels the Bugginses as a sitcom is uh, Emily's desire for self-improvement. Um, she wants to rise above her station. Uh, but she doesn't, she doesn't know how to do this. And this causes a great deal of humour. Um, and she, all the problems that she's got 
are the problems that are associated with looking after three children. She's got a little baby, she's got a, a very naughty boy and a, a little girl who's always complaining. And so she's just endlessly dealing with issues and problems. She has to keep house on a shoestring budget for which she receives no thanks and no recognition. Um, and she has to, I think the biggest thing that propels the bug into it is that she has to look after this horrible, cantankerous, deaf, elderly mother-in-law. Um, and she adds to her problems and adds to the conflict all the time um, in the horrible, horrible grandma. Her husband is lazy, he's bad-tempered and he's unhelpful. And this causes even more conflict. And none of the family get on with each other unless they're siding with each other against someone else in order to cause even more conflict. So all that conflict was at the heart of the Buginters and I would argue that made it far more than a series of sketches, that made it a sitcom despite its length. Um, and that it has given us so many iterations of the domestic sitcom ever since. Ask anyone in TV production and they'll tell you that conflict of some sort is essential to keep viewers engaged. And by conflict, I mean some kind of pressure that the characters are under, leading to their transformation and perhaps even redemption. As the veteran TV producer Robert Thurkle says, the pressure or conflict is necessary for the characters to reveal themselves and change. If it works, we are moved, understand ourselves better and are better able to construct stories for ourselves out of the many chaotic aspects of our existence. Just think of MasterChef as an example. It's been running since 1990 and has probably been so successful in part because of the amount of pressure there is. The hopeful chefs are competing against one another to get through to the next round and ultimately win. They're also competing against themselves. If you drop the blancmange halfway to the fridge, then there's no one to blame but yourself. And they're against the clock and they need to impress the judges. While Mabel could rely on the format of conflict, there was also another aspect to it, as Jen says. All of the stereotypes of working classes in the 1920s and 30s feature in her work. Um, and so I think some of it was part of a general social context in the 1920s and 30s of, of, of working class and middle-class conflict. However, despite the stereotypes of the day, Mabel wanted her characters to be likeable and appeal to her middle-class audience. She also sees the humanity in her characters and she wants her audiences to see that. She wants her audiences to like them. And I think that's really important for the Buggins, um, uh, for the Buggins family and for um, thinking about the BBC as a primarily middle-class, um, form of entertainment in the 1920s and 30s when she's really um, when she's really becoming this celebrity and the star she's she's speaking to the middle class um, and that's probably another reason why her comedy doesn't translate to today because I think it was very much a part of that period the 1920s and 30s. The Buggins were so popular in the 1930s that Mabel's character Grandma Buggins was used to broadcast recipes during the food shortages of the Second World War. As Jen details in her book, on September 1st, 1939, 
the day that Germany invaded Poland, and two days before Britain's declaration of war on Germany, Mabel reached out to the directors of both BBC Drama and Variety, offering her services if war broke out. Her campaign to continue writing and performing in aid of the war effort resulted in the publication of four novels, several speaking tours for government ministries, a handful of stage tours, a successful West End play, and over 270 wartime appearances on the BBC, far exceeding other well-known wartime personalities. The Buggins family was conscripted for official war work on the popular Kitchen Front programme. Initial scripts indicate that Grandma or the mother, Emily Buggins, simply read through a recipe once or twice. But by June 1942, Mabel had evolved her sketches so that Grandma gave out recipes line by line after which Emily repeated them. Jen explains a helpful technique that we probably wouldn't even notice today, but at the time was really innovative. And before the housewives would go out to the stores, they could listen to the kitchen front and get recipes. So um, the Buggins just show up there. And it's really Grandma Buggins and it's um, Emily. So Grandma and the mother. It's actually really well done because when you think about, and this is an innovation that I haven't talked about with Mabel, she's thinking about people listening. She's very, very very, very sort of focused on the listening experience. And so she knows if you're at home and you're writing everything down, you need, you, you're probably going, wait, 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 hold on. Right. And she's doing that. And you think live radio, people can't pause it or anything, you know, like we could do on now, we could be like, wait, well, hold on, stop, pause that for a second. They weren't pausing anything. So she was creating these little pauses with grandma. And grandma would be like, wait a second, you know, hold on. I can't do her voice, but it's really cool the way that she reads the recipe twice and she inserts these little breaks through it. So she's thinking, here's these women at home, they're writing down the recipes and they need time. Emily also anticipated listeners' questions by stopping grandma now and again to inquire about a particular ingredient's availability or to ask for clarification. Mabel's efforts on the kitchen front was important war work that showed Mabel's commitment to the war effort, and it also ensured her continued relevance on radio and strengthened her celebrity. As Jen says, dramatising the day-to-day -day domestic life and relationships have become the foundation of both soaps and sitcoms. Mabel was a trailblazer in the development of two genres that have shaped how the nation imagines itself. No matter which series has the greater claim to being the prototype, there's little doubt that the modern soap opera is based on Mabel's work. That said, historians of both sitcom and soap opera tend to point to American programming as the templates for these genres in Britain. But British sitcom was not transplanted from America, it was a homegrown invention, starting with the Buggins family in 1925. Wikipedia's entry on radio comedy in Britain notes that a number of British radio comedies achieved considerable renown in the second half of the 20th century. No mention of the Buggins or that of anything in the first half of the century. You probably shouldn't rely exclusively on Wikipedia for your historical insights, but it's worth referencing it to show how popular sources have got the history of radio comedy wrong. According to Wikipedia, radio comedy began in the United States in 1930 and did not begin in the UK until a generation later, with such popular 1950s shows as The Goon Show and Hancock's Half Hour. Whoever put that entry in was out by about 25 years. 
The Glums, a five-minute comedy sketch which appeared in 1953, featured working-class characterizations and situations that were strikingly similar to the Buggins sketches, yet the Glums are considered a watershed moment in the representation of the sitcom family. The difference with the Glums was that the male perspective took hold. In the Glums, the female parts rarely spoke or were relegated to noises off unintelligible shout. The show ushered in the usual British family sitcom dynamic in which women act as the backdrop with the focus being on the men. Throughout Mabel's Buggins work, both on radio and in print, men were often relegated to the periphery. Conversations between her female protagonists rarely failed the Beckdale-Wallace test, which provides a simple guide to gender equality in cultural forms. To pass the test, a text must have 1. At least two female characters 2. Who talk to each other 3. About something other than a man Ha! I like that. Sounds simple, but in a database of 9,329 movies that have been analysed, 5,285, just over 56%, pass all three tests. In lead acting roles, as writers and creators, and in leadership positions, women remain underrepresented across multiple media. Women have exercised and continue to exercise immense, if often unrecognised, influence on the BBC. The early days of the BBC burst with women, as Jen says. The names of Hermione Gingold, Helena Millay, Elsie and Doris Waters, Nellie Wallace, Tessie O'Shea, Gladys Young, Frances Kilpatrick and Helen Pride represent just a fraction of the women who were well known to and beloved by audiences in the 1920s and 30s, whose work and influence have yet to be written into the history of the BBC. Mabel's invention of the first radio family was a critical moment in the history of British broadcasting entertainment. Her emphasis on the humour of the everyday rhythms of home and relationships are influential in the evolution of both sitcom and soap opera. Mabel was also able to use her vocal ability to show her characters. The closest British performer we have to her style today is probably Catherine Tate, whose Nan character isn't so different from Grandma Buggins. Here's Jilly on the similarities between Mabel's Grandma Buggins and Tate's Nan. What would be so fascinating would be to give Catherine Tate some of her material and talk to her about it because, I mean, if you throw in some expletives <laughs> to, to, to Mabel's sketch, um, some of her sketches, uh, particularly, I think Cheering Up Mariah, I do love that sketch. I think it is so funny. Um, but you throw in some expletives and you've really got now as a kind of Job's comforter. You can just imagine her going down, sitting next to someone going, oh, you do look fucking awful. You know, she would, what you been doing? Oh my God, I looked at her and I thought, oh my God. You know, that deep thing she gives Nan. Uh, what a fucking liberty. You know, all that stuff she does is, I mean, obviously Mabel wouldn't use that language in any time of her life, I expect. But certainly not publicly on the on the radio, uh, on the wireless. But yeah, it would be so wonderful to have to have her look at this material actually. Filson Young, a journalist and radio critic in the early 1930s, found himself shocked by the depths Grandma would sink. He felt Mabel had created such despicable characters that the listener derived a grim satisfaction when catastrophe befell the family. 
He wrote, There is undoubtedly humour in it, but it is humour of an essentially unlovely and ill-natured kind, springing not from the well of love in our hearts, but from the well of bitterness. Similar tension has been worked into the best sitcoms ever since. In 1928, Mabel and her performing and writing partner, Michael Hogan, penned a novel called The Bugginses, about the famous radio family, and then Mabel went on to write three more Buggins-related novels without Hogan in the late 1930s. The novels Mabel wrote were examples of her desire to extend the reach of her radio works and her name beyond the radio in ways that were pretty unique for the period. The Buggins novels amplified the audience's desire for more interaction, both with the radio family and Mabel's other works, strengthening Mabel's celebrity and increasing the popularity of her radio family. We take such attempts to expand both the audience and audience's interest across different mediums for granted these days. A book might be adapted into film and then readapted as a TV or streaming series, for example. 90 years ago, this was really innovative for Mabel, as few BBC performers or writers developed such a diverse variety of media at the time. As you know, Mabel spent some time in late 1936 hobnobbing with the Hollywood elite of the day. It was while there that she was inspired by a family drama, or what we'd call a soap opera today, as Jen explains. In the 1930s, I think 1936, she went to Hollywood parties in 1936 and she met lots of people. Um, and when she came back, she mentioned to Val Gilgood this, I think it was called One Man's Family. And it was, a, it was an American soap opera. Um, and so that's where she came up with the idea for soap. So this was an American creation, uh, which, as you know, I mean, still, this is problematic. And, you know, sort of American culture and British culture and the conflicts between the two um, and the difficulties of, of, you know, the influence of American culture sort of whitewashing and washing over. Um, British culture has always been problematic. And so Val Gilgood was very critical of that. I think a lot of people are critical of soap opera anyway. While Val Gilgood may have been critical, Mabel's back and forth with him resulted in her dramatising, ordinary, middle-class life. Efforts that led to the forerunner of British soap opera. The result of Mabel discovering the concept in the US was her series, English Family Robinson, created with her nephew Dennis. And later, Gilgood believed that, in the UK at least, the family drama, i.e. a soap opera, began with the English Family Robinson. It was with the English Family Robinson in 1938 that this type of programme item was introduced by Mabel and Dennis Consonjuris, almost immediately establishing a clamant demand, which was met in turn by Frontline Family, by Mrs Dale and by the Archers. However, it's not exactly praise. While Gilgood identified Mabel as being the UK's soap opera trailblazer, he does it in a very critical way because it's a very American genre and she brought it from America. So it, that was very, she didn't come up with it. She brought um, this concept from America after she had spent time in Hollywood. It was a series that, according to Mabel, could have been titled Anybody's Family and became the template for British soap opera in the 1940s. English Family Robinson was one of the first attempts to dramatise the everyday on the BBC and it was a huge success for Mabel and Dennis. The Radio Times sold it as Their weekly adventures will be those that have happened to thousands of listeners and their families during the week. Though nothing sensational is likely to happen to them, 
you will probably soon feel that you know them as well as you know anybody you meet in the shops, at the golf club, or in the morning on the 8.45. Just like modern day soaps. Here's Jen on some background on the English Family Robinson, and why the BBC probably gave it the go-ahead. English Family Robinson, I think, are very much who the BBC imagines is their audience. Um, a, you know, a mother and a father and two kids, and, um, you know, the various different things that those kids get into and their relationships. And, you know, the, the son likes to go to the races and the father likes to golf and the mother stays home. All of that. I think that's the imagination of the BBC in the 1930s. As well as creating kitchen front shows with the Bugginses during the Second World War, Mabel and Dennis also adapted English Family Robinson for wartime. Here's Jen again. English Family Robinson that comes out in 1938, there's a serialized version of it, and there's, so there's like six episodes, I think, that come out with that. Um, when the war hits, um, Mabel and Dennis start to do um, the Robinsons in wartime. So it becomes English Family Robinson, and then it, it, it eventually will become the Robinsons. And Mabel came within a whisker of being immortalised forever as a pioneer of soap opera that could have been her ticket to fame because the Robinsons go into the wartime period and eventually I think you know the the history of soap opera in Britain goes from the Robinsons to the Dales uh, to Mrs. Dale's diary um, and I think she could have been part of that kind of history and she got written out of it. During the war Mabel and Dennis also decided to diversify English family Robinson into another medium. She and Dennis decide that they're going to take the English Family Robinson and they're going to make a West End production. So they make a play out of it. That play was Acacia Avenue, which had a run of over 200 shows through 1943 to 1944. That's right in the middle of the Second World War. In February 1944, Mabel and Dennis sold the film rights to Sidney Box, a British film producer and screenwriter with the film adaptation becoming 29 Acacia Avenue. Not to be confused with Eric Wimp, aka the one and only Banana Man, who lived at 29 Acacia Road. The road name has since become a byword for suburban life. And on that bananary bombshell, we've reached the end of the fourth episode. Now that we've heard how Mabel's creations of the Bugginses and English Family Robinson led the way for sitcoms and soap operas in the UK, and as I said in the first episode, isn't it uh, bananas that more of us don't know about Mabel? Especially me being family. In the next and final episode, we'll look at how Mabel dealt with her newly found fame and celebrity, and how she dealt with, and basically hated, the rise of television. See you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Aunt Mabel. That's time you could have been doing something else, unless you were doing something else, in which case, well done for multitasking. So I appreciate you spending time to learn about the life and times of Mabel Constant Juris. If you've liked what you've heard and think more people should know about Mabel, please share the episode or the series with someone and leave a five-star rating and review. It helps others discover the podcast and Mabel's story. Feel free to get in touch if you have any questions, comments or feedback. You can email me at jack. J-A-C-K, at themediamoment.com. That's jack at themediamoment.com. 
This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, Jack Shilito, with contributions from Jilly Bush Bailey, former actress and Professor Emirata at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London, Jen Purcell, Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at St Michael's College in Vermont, USA, and Dr Carolyn Scott-Jeffs, a playwright and lecturer in playwriting and dramaturgy at the Loughborough University. The part of Mabel was voiced by my friend Kate Walker. Thank you to all four for their help and support. And of course, thank you to my wife Denise for her gentle nudging to keep going with the project and general encouragement throughout. To read more about Mabel, you can visit themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constantjuris. That's themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constantjuris. See you in episode five.